You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. As I hear the story of Yertle, there is one straight out of the Bible that sounds almost identical to the story of Yertle's life. Uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles today. Uh, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, are basically history books of some of the kings from the nation of Israel. And so we, we kind of follow their lives through, uh, through history and see the rise and fall of the nation as they rise and fall with God. And are they worshiping him or not? We're going to pick up this thing, the, the story of King Uzziah. Now, let me give you a little background. King Uzziah, uh, he becomes king when he's 16 years old. Can you imagine becoming king of a nation when you're 16 years old? Most of us are worried when we're 16 years old that someone might see us driving our grandma's Buick. Like, that's what we're most concerned about. When I was 16 years old, I was learning how to change clothes in the car while driving because I was late for work. Like, that's what I was doing when I was 16 years old. This dude is king of a nation. And because he was so young, he has a a teacher named Zechariah come in and teach him and make sure he knows all the ways of God and and how he's supposed to interact with with the kingdom and be a good king. And, And he must have been a bright kid because Uzziah takes Zechariah's advice and for many, many years, Zechariah, uh, or, or Uzziah is a great king. He really is. And we read about the first half of his leadership, uh, the first half of his reign in Second Chronicles. We'll be in chapter 26. Um, if you don't have a Bible today, it's fine. We're going to have the verses from the Bible on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible or maybe you need one, we give them away for free at Venture Church. And so uh, there might have been some laying under your chair when you came in. You can grab one of those and take it. Uh, there's more back there by the coffee station. Um, feel free to get a free Bible when you leave. We want people to have Bibles. We're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 26. And, and I'm just going to jump in, starting halfway through verse 5, and, and read about the first half of Uzziah's reign. So check this out with me. It says, as long as he, Uzziah, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. So here's a few examples. He went to war against the Philistines. They were this powerful nation, the Philistines. They were always going against the Israelites. And he goes, he goes against the Philistines, and he broke down their walls. He broke down the walls of uh, blah, 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 some places that you've never been to, and you probably can't pronounce. But he breaks down all these walls, and then he rebuilds the towns near Ashdod, another place, and elsewhere among the Philistines. And then he says, God helped him against the Philistines and against a bunch of other armies that we don't know where they are. And then the Ammonites brought the tribute to Uzziah, which is a great honor. So we've got him breaking down walls and defeating armies, and God's helping him. And now the Ammonites bring a tribute to Uzziah, and it says his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. And this is just a brief snippet, and I did intentionally skip through some of the names and the places because that can get confusing. But what you need to understand is that this guy Uzziah was a very powerful king, and he was successful in terms of kingship and leadership and armies. It's interesting uh, the, the, the name Uzziah means the Lord is my strength. That's what it means. And we see that throughout Uzziah's reign. In fact, when you look at, at verse 15 of that chapter, this is just a, one sentence that kind of puts it in perspective. It says, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. Who helped him? God. He was honoring God. He was living for God. He was doing all the things that a God-fearing person should do, and therefore his kingdom was successful. His life was good. He had success, but then, then things take a turn. Let's, let's see how things shift for Uzziah, starting in verse 16. It says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Does that sound familiar? He was unfaithful to the Lord as God. He entered the temple of the Lord 
to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, let me put some context into this. Uzziah is a Jew. Okay? He's a Jew. The Jews had a sacred place called the temple, and there were some very specific rules about how you used the temple. And there were smaller rooms inside the temple, and there were very specific rules about how you entered and used these rooms. And you're not a Jew today, and I'm not a Jew today, and we're not in a temple this morning. All you need to know about the rules for the temple is this. Only certain priests on certain days could go in certain rooms and do certain things. It didn't matter if you're the king or not. You don't just bust into the temple to burn incense. That was a very sacred job. The temple was a sacred place. And if you came in spiritually unprepared to walk into these rooms, not only did you break God's simple rule, but you had desecrated the temple. You brought your sinfulness, you brought your unprepared uh, spirit into the room, and, and you desecrate the temple. And it's a big deal. It might not seem like a big deal to us, but it was a huge deal to them. And so, uh, meanwhile... I picture it happening like this. Uzziah walks into the temple area. He's in the temple courts. And he goes to where some of the temple instruments are, are held. And he grabs these censers for burning the incense. And he grabs those things and he starts to walk with them. Well, he's not a priest and everybody knows it. Why does everybody know it? Because he's the king. Everybody knows him. So he walks and he grabs those. And, and you got this guy. His name's Azariah. Azariah is one of the chief priests. And he must have seen Uzziah pick up the instruments for burning the incense. And and I just imagine something like this going down. Uh, excuse me, your majesty, sir, king, uh, woo, woo, Uzziah, hey, hey, bud, listen, uh, you really, you know you shouldn't be carrying that. I know you're the king, but what are you about to do? Apparently, Uzziah's not paying any mind to him. He keeps on walking. It says that Azariah has 80 other priests who are standing there in the temple grounds with him, and they see Uzziah doing this, and so they follow him in for an intervention. Because this is bad. You can't just go into the temple. Let's check out what it says. It says, Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him. They confronted him and they said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That's for the priests and the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary for you've been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. I think it's very fitting that these priests are called courageous priests. You, you don't just walk up to the king of a nation and uh, give him a little smackdown verbally. You don't just do that. And so, but they, they feel so compelled by the nature of what's happening that they risk maybe even their own life to go, ah, Uzziah, listen, this isn't just going to hurt you. This is going to hurt everybody. Man, you're desecrating the temple. You shouldn't be in there. Well, the story moves on. It might have been uh, awesome if Uzziah had just said, you know what, Azariah? Thanks. Thanks, buddy. I was wrong. I should leave the temple. But that's not what Uzziah does. It's not what he does at all. Let's just check out this verse. It says, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. And when you get angry, you lose your mind, right? And this is how it goes. It says, while he was raging at the priests, in the presence, before the incense altar, in the Lord's temple, Leprosy broke out on his forehead. When uh, Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house in leprosy, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Azariah comes in and tries to stop him. And if he had just walked away, things might have been much different. 
But because he didn't just walk away, because he didn't just honor God, because he didn't just do the faithful thing that he knew he should have done. By the way, Zechariah, remember Zechariah had come and trained him in the ways of being a king when he was 16. He knew better. Every Jew in Israel knew better than just to walk into the temple to burn incense. And if he had just walked away, everything would have been different. But God decided, okay, fine. You want to be king? Okay. You want to be big dog? Fine. I'm going to teach you a lesson that you'll never forget. Leprosy is a disease uh, It's fairly uncommon today. It's in, in third world places and in the corners of the world, but uh, it's pretty much been defeated in our world today. It, it, but in, 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 in Uzziah's day, man, it was a very, very deathly illness. Uh, there was no cure for it. Basically, it affected your nervous system. It started breaking down how your nerves interacted with the rest of your body. You started losing feeling in part of your body. You would often get cuts and bruises because you couldn't feel. There were also these unsightly sores that would come up all over your body that would get infected. And before long, it was a death sentence. Uzziah gets this leprous spot on his forehead, and everyone immediately knows, holy cow, God's involved. Uzziah didn't listen. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And now he's got a death sentence. Here's the thing with leprosy. When people got leprosy, they were often uh, immediately quarantined and forgotten. And this once great king, who had risen to prominence because he trusted God and God helped him along the way to defeat all these armies and to do all this awesome stuff, he ends up quarantined and forgotten. So, the question is, what happened with Uzziah, the king. And what can we learn from today? Because that's a story that easily, we, we hear a lot of these stories from the really old parts of the Bible, and we go, well, that just doesn't, I'm not going to try to go into the temple and offer incense, and leprosy has a cure, so what's the point? What happened to Uzziah? Well, you got this guy who rose to promise because of his faithfulness in God, but it says he began to be unfaithful to God, and then what happens immediately? He begins to fall. Why? It says his pride became his downfall. In fact, pride has led to the downfall of countless leaders. People who thought they were above the system. People who thought they were beyond the reaches of, of any type of, of, uh, of discipline. People who thought they made the rules. People who thought they were the king of their kingdom. Pride led to his downfall. Uzziah wasn't defeated by any army or any assassin. Uzziah beat himself with his own pride, with his own desires. And King Uzziah's life is tragic. I mean, what, what might have been different for the nation of Israel and future generations? We'll never know. We'll never know. So this morning, I want to ask you guys a simple question. It's the same question I'm going to ask a couple different times, a couple different ways. But this is simple. I think everybody can process this. The question is this. Who is your king? And what kingdom are you building? That's the, that's the question. Who is your king? Is it, is it you? Are you the king of your life? That's, it's pretty popular to be the king of your life. Just listen to the radio for a few minutes. Whatever pop song is going to tell you all the things that you want to conquer and do and own and be. That's what it's all about. It's all about being the king. Who's the king? Is it you or, or is it God? And whose kingdom are you building? A lot of times we want to say, well, God's my king. Well, if God's your king, then are you building his kingdom? Because if he's your king, then you need to be building his kingdom. But if he's not your king, then it's okay. You're building somebody else's kingdom. But you're not building his kingdom, and he's not your king. 
That's the question. I want to I jump into an analogy. Uh, like Yertle the Turtle, I think we all like the idea of, of climbing, and, and it's okay. It's okay to want to succeed. It's okay to, to climb and try to get to a place of prominence. That's good. It's a good thing. It's a good self-esteem thing. It's a good, it's a good way to live our life. It's good to have good work ethic, just to be someone who wants to achieve and do well, right? We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be bums. We want to achieve. We want to climb. But it seems like we are constantly climbing these mountains, there are mountains that we all climb. The first one that we probably face when we're very young is this it's kind of an academic mountain. It's the, it's the educational mountain. It's like, man, if I could just know enough, if I could make enough A's, if I could make enough A's or B's, if I could get into the right clubs and societies, if I could do this, 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 and have it on my resume, I'd be set. I'd be happy. I will have achieved success. I will climb this mountain, climb this mountain, climb this mountain. And I'll never forget the first time. It only happened once to me in elementary school. I made the honor roll, right? And I got to get one of those bumper stickers that it says, uh, my kid's smarter than your kid. And you put it on your bumper, and my mom got to wear that thing on her bumper. I was like, yeah, on a roll. And it's good to achieve, right? It's good to be good at something. But we climb, don't we? We climb and we climb, and we look for satisfaction, and we look for fulfillment. We climb other mountains. Uh, we climb the career mountain. That's probably the one we climb after school. And, and, and it's, it's good to climb the career mountain, but... We want to we climb that success ladder. I want to be the manager. I want to be the boss. I want to be the owner. I want to be the CEO. I want to be the best of the best of the best. And is it okay to have a good work ethic and want to do well? Yes. But we climb and we climb and we climb and we make that the mountain that we're trying to conquer and the kingdom that we're trying to build. We, we climb relational mountains. You know, in the culture we live in today, it's not true, by the way, but it's a cultural myth. The cultural myth is that singleness is just not an option. That's, that's the cultural myth. I've got to have a BFF at least, and somebody that I can call and, and cry on their shoulder, and, and I've got to have uh, a best friend to snuggle with that's my, that, that's my boo, you know what I'm saying? And like, that's my person, that, and, and that's, that's what culture, I mean, you can live by yourself. Uh, here's the thing, I believe that God created us to be people who function socially, and, and, and we build on each other, and, and that's important, it's very important, but because of the society we live in, man, we climb. We climb and we climb and we climb to the point that sometimes we are downright dirty about it and we throw people to the side because somebody better just came along, someone better looking or smarter or with a better job, whatever. And we climb. And we climb the social mountain. After all, it's, it's not about what you know, is it? It's about who you know. And if you can know the right people, man, you can, right? We climb. Why do we do this? Why do we climb? There's probably several reasons we're not going to like lay out the couch and all have psychology sessions right now. Like that's not going to happen. There are reasons that we do this, but I, I think when we back down and observe it in general, I think we climb many mountains to get to the top because we think that if we could just be the king, everything would be all right. I could just I could just conquer this, and so we climb. And it's not bad to want a good life. That's great. God wants us to have a good life. But it's vitally important to be able to answer the question, who is the king of your life? And whose kingdom are you building? Making yourself the king and building your own kingdom comes with a few dangerous problems. And I, I'm going to go through them really quickly. There's three dangerous problems, I think, that we encounter when we try to build our own kingdom, set up ourselves as kings. The first problem is this. Building your own kingdom and being your own king is it's ultimately empty. And it doesn't satisfy. That's the first one. There's a slide for that, too. There's going to be three if you want to remember these. It's ultimately empty, and it doesn't satisfy. That's a problem. That's a danger with building your own kingdom. Imagine some of the climbers in the world, some of the best climbers in the world, 
climb Mount Everest, okay? And I want you to imagine for yourself, you're a mountain climber, and you have climbed Mount Everest. And man, it has been a journey for months, perhaps years, you've been training, and you've like invested money, and you might have destroyed relationships or built relationships, whatever it is, and you have all this equipment and all this stuff that you're carrying up, and you've got these goals, and you can just see, you can just taste the summit. Because when I get there, oh, it's going to be so awesome. I'm going to be at the top of the world. I'm going to see everything. And we're up at the top of Mount Everest. And, and just before you, there's this, uh, there's this 40-foot wall of nearly vertical ice. They call it the Hillary Step. They say that's the last thing you have to overcome before you get to the top of that. Many people don't make it over that last step. In fact, many people never get to it. The majority of people who try to summit that mountain fail at some point. But there are a few who do. And you would think that by climbing Mount Everest, as a mountain climber, that'd be it. In fact, as a human being, you're like, oh, climb Mount Everest, pretty much done. Like, I'm, I retire from life. I'm done. I climbed Mount Everest. You would think that there'd this be a, this remarkable sense of satisfaction, of success, of fulfillment, of fullness. There was recently a movie made, it was like an IMAX movie that was made about a bunch of climbers of Mount Everest. And several of the people who had summited the mountain were interviewed, and the question was asked, how do you feel now that you finished climbing Mount Everest? Overwhelmingly, the response was a little bit sad. When people were asked that question, what they said was, well, I guess I'm a little disappointed. Really? You just climbed Mount Everest. Like, why are you disappointed about? And this is why. They said, I got to the top, and... And I come down, and it was great. It was awesome. There was a ticker tape parade, and everybody was cheering. For... But now what? Like, I, I did that. And so you know what they do? You interview these same people, and people who summon it once often will feel that way. And then to overcome that, they will climb it again. Because this time, oh, this time it's going to be different. Because when I get to the top this time, it's going to fill me. I'm going to be satisfied. It's going to be awesome. You get back to the bottom, and oh, it's over again. And interviewing these people, people who had climbed the mountain once, many of them had also climbed it six, seven, eight times. And then they start doing crazy stuff because it's still not filling them. They start to climb it without oxygen. That's really, really high up there. And you really, really need oxygen to breathe. So they take it with them. But they're climbing without oxygen. Why? Because maybe that'll do it. Maybe that'll be fulfilling. Maybe I'll be satisfied. And I just got to ask this simple question. At what point... Do you realize that you have been climbing the wrong mountain? You're looking for success. You're looking for fulfillment. You're looking for fullness, and it's just not there. Don't go eight times. You might die next time. Don't do that. It's dangerous to set ourselves up as king, and we might think it's crazy, but I think that's something that we do often. We pursue the same broken relationship over and over and over again. At what point do you realize, maybe I'm climbing the wrong mountain? We pursue the same career that's just not fulfilling, fulfilling, fulfilling. And we want that to fulfill our lives. And at what point do we realize, maybe I'm climbing the wrong mountain. I'm all about me, my, mine. I'm going to do me, 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 me. But I don't feel satisfied. I don't feel full. In fact, I feel empty. At what point can we realize we're climbing the wrong mountain and it's the danger of setting yourself up as king and building your own kingdom that is often empty and unsatisfying. I would actually say it's always empty and unsatisfying. That's the first danger. The second danger is this. The second danger is that it is very scary to think of the things that we might do to get to the top. Back to the, back to the uh, Mount Everest for just a second. There's a story of some climbers. Uh, uh, 
These guys get so focused on what they're doing that they just get tunnel vision and they do not care about anybody else. I'm not going to say this is true about all climbers. It's probably not. But there have been a few cases that are pretty sad. And in fact, there's this one. It's, it's, uh, there's these climbers. They were climbing the mountain and a storm just comes out of nowhere and they don't have shelter and they get stuck on the side of the mountain with no shelter overnight through a howling blizzard. Well, the next day, another group of uh, climbers begins to, to climb the same path that they had just climbed. And they come to the place where those stranded hikers were and find that they are near death. They've been exposed to the elements all night, and they are near death, but these guys are so focused. They don't even say a word to them. It's a documented story. They don't offer them food, comfort, oxygen, shelter, anything. They just keep right on hiking. They go a couple hundred feet up the trail, set up camp, spend the night. Next morning, get up, go to the top, come back down. Here, here's how sad it gets. They're so focused on their goal of summiting Everest that when they come back down the mountain, the first set of climbers are still there, still stranded, hanging on for dear life. And they walk right by, leaving them for dead. It's scary the things we'll do to get to the top. And we want to judge them, right? We're going to be like, oh, those jerks. Come on, can't you spare a biscuit or something? But I'm guessing that we've all done some pretty scary things to get to the top. Maybe nothing like that, but... Have you ever stolen, lied, cheated, used somebody, used the guy, used the girl, spread a rumor? That's a hard one. Broken a promise? You ever abandoned someone emotionally, if not physically? Why? Because at the moment, I was building a kingdom, and I kind of needed to just do that. It's scary the things that we'll do to get to the top when we set ourselves up as the king of our own kingdom. And there's a third problem. And the third problem is this. The third problem is that during the process, we'll make God our enemy. I know that sounds crazy. Well, let's just take a look at a little bit of scripture here. J James, um, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes in James chapter 4, he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You hear that? God opposes the proud. Let's make sure we're reading that clearly, okay? It, it doesn't say that God doesn't love you. In fact, God loves you very much. There's nothing you can do to take that away. God, you can't make God love you more. You can't make God love you less. He loves you, but he opposes you when you're proud. Because he wants you to fail at that. Let me illustrate it for you. You're standing in a parking lot. A young child who's not paying attention goes to dart out in front of traffic. That's what they desire. I am going to oppose that child. I'm going to get in their way. I'm going to block them. I'm going to push them down. It might hurt them, but it'll save their life because I love them. God opposes the proud. He loves them, but he opposes them. And when we are building our own kingdom and setting ourselves up as king, much like Uzziah did, like Yertle the turtle did, man, he opposes you. And, and you don't want to be opposed by God. If you aren't willing to bow down to God and make him king, he will love you, but we, he will oppose you. And because he opposes you, your kingdom, like Yertles, will end up in the mud. But that's a good thing. Those are some dangers of building your own kingdom and setting yourself up as king. So, kind of coming to the end here, what, what about you? What about me? Same questions, okay? This is simple talk today. Who is your king? 
You or God? Take a quick survey of your life and see if you come into it. This is not me judging you. This is not me coming into your life. This is you in a black folding chair sitting in a gymnasium asking yourself a simple question. Who's my king? And, and if you don't know who the king is in your life, let me ask you the second question. Whose kingdom are you building? Yours or God's? Who will you bow down to? If you're a Christian this morning, if like being a God chaser and following Jesus with your life is, is what you're all about, uh, I hope the answer to you is obvious. I hope you're like, yes, Jesus is my king and I'm building his kingdom. Done. It might be, though, a lot of us fall in this category. I know I have lots of times in my life. You're like, yeah, I go to church, I do a small group, I read Bibles even. But you know what? I'm still kind of building my own kingdom. My encouragement for you would be to take a step back, evaluate where you are in life, and say, I need to build God's kingdom. But maybe you're not a Christian. First of all, I'm glad you're here. It's okay. This is a safe place. We say we're church for people who don't like church. Seriously. Because like, you could continue to hate God and church, but you like coming here and hanging out, and you think that maybe you're picking some good stuff up. Keep coming. That's exactly what we're here for. But as you hear this, and maybe you've been here for many weeks or even months, the same question applies. Like, who's your king? And where's that taking you? And what kingdom are you building? And where's that taking you? And are you climbing the right mountain? I want you to know this, that God loves you. God loves you. And he wants to be your king. I love God's example that he sets in this. Um, when people ask me about Jesus, I, I, for a long time ago, I got this, I, this, this, this idea of hearing somebody else talking about Jesus being your king. And I love to talk about my king. Let me tell you about my king. My, my king is amazing. He loves his subjects, man. Unlike any other king, most kings would just like, oh, well, off with your head or send you off to war or whatever. But like, dude, this guy's coming down. Let me tell you about what some of his followers said. There's a guy named Book, Book. There's a guy named John who wrote five books in the New Testament. John's story is pretty interesting. He, he was so convinced about the resurrection of Jesus that he ends up giving his life, literally. He ends up exiled by the Roman government on an island called Patmos where he spends his last days. But he writes these five books in the New Testament of the Bible. And some things he says about my king is that Jesus is God in the flesh. You can't beat that for a king. That's my king. He also says in the book of Revelation, as he writes about Jesus, he says that Jesus is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He's the king that trumps all other kings. That's my king. Then there's Paul. Paul, who was so convinced of the resurrection that he went from being a Jesus uh, follower killer, he killed Christians, all the way to being the greatest Christian missionary to, li to ever live, and wrote the majority of the New Testament. Here's what Paul says about Jesus. He says in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So Jesus was God. When Jesus came to earth, it was God putting on human flesh and coming to live on earth with us. Never forget that. He said, Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, he, be, he being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Did you hear that? Jesus is the king. He was willing to lay down his life. What other king does that? Who says, you know what, I'm going to go down and be a servant. I'm going to go down and take the likeness of the lowest person in my kingdom, and I'm going to live like them. In fact, I'm going to even be obedient to my own law of death. Now, i got to tell you, if... If that's where the story ended, it, it'd still be a really good story, wouldn't it? Like, wow, this really great king, he came down, he gave his life. 
But that's not my king. My king defeated death. Why? Because he's in very nature God. He defeated death. He came down humble, and he served, and he lived, and he died, but he defeated death walking out of the grave. That's my king. And then the second half of that verse that Paul writes, he says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, king, and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's my king. And if you want to make him your king too, you can. You can do it today. And you, you can come... Right now, today, we don't do uh, adventure. One of the things we do, because I think that's one reason people don't like church, we, we don't make you come stand in the front and, and, and you know, share your dirty laundry with everybody in the room. Instead, I would much rather invite you to come have a conversation with me or one of our volunteers. Say, you know what, I'll make Jesus my king. I want to do it today. You can do that. You can do it. We'll have a time of reflection in just a minute. You can grab one of us off to the side right now. We can do it or we can do it afterwards. Or maybe you're like, I, I don't know, I don't know. I got a lot of questions. It's cool. You're in good company. There's a lot of questions to be had, and they're good questions. If you wouldn't mind, make a note on your connection card. Somebody will give you a call this week, or you can connect with someone before you leave today. And set up a time, well, let's just talk. Let's talk about the questions we have. You probably have a lot of the same questions I do. <laughs> it's okay. But I want to ask you, please, make Jesus your king. Why? Because he set the example of how we should live our life, and by doing that, we can build his kingdom to change the world. That's my king. And I hope it'll be your king too. Let me pray for you guys today. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your goodness, for being a good king, and for giving us uh, something to believe in. Um, not just a question, not just some kind of mysticism or philosophy, but instead something that's tangible and good, and that is the fact that your son came to earth. There's plenty of historical evidence for that. There's plenty of documented facts to talk about it. That he rose from the dead. But some of the greatest minds in the world have said, yeah, that, that is something that can be well attested throughout history in people's lives. That's real. That's tangible. We can hold on to it. But for anyone in the room this morning that has questions about you, God, I pray that they found a safe place with us. That we can begin to journey through life together, chase you, understand you, and love you every day. We lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.